Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite news media are saying that Biden has to go to Saudi Arabia in July, despite his pledges to make the country a pariah for abuses, including the murder of a Washington Post contributor, because stability? Shaking hands with Mohammed bin Salman makes sense, even in the context of denying Cuba and Venezuela participation in the Americas summit out of purported concerns about their human rights records because gas prices? It's hard to parse corporate media coverage of Biden's Saudi visit because that coverage obscures rather than illuminates what's going on behind the euphemism U.S. interests. We'll talk about the upcoming trip with Raya Jarrar, advocacy director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. Also on the show, congressional Republicans criticize small defense increase in Biden's budget blueprint. Read one headline. Biden faces fire from left on increased defense spending. Read another. It sounds like a media hosting a robust debate on an issue that divides the country. Except a real debate would be informed. We'd hear just how much the U.S. spends on military weaponry compared to other countries. And a real debate would be humane. We'd hear discussion of alternatives other ways of organizing a society besides around the business of killing. That sort of conversation isn't pie in the sky. There's actual legislation right now that could anchor it. We'll talk about the People Over Pentagon Act of 2022 with Lindsay Koshgarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. Right-wing media are whipping up a dangerous anti-trans frenzy in this country, as evidenced by the rash of anti-trans laws being passed in GOP-controlled states and recent violent attacks on pride and drag queen events. But as Julie Holler writes for FAIR.org, liberal media are also culpable for this shift against trans people and their very right to exist. Holler cites a recent example, a June 19th New York Times magazine cover story called The Battle Over Gender Therapy that muses about whether gender-affirming care for trans kids should be so easy to access. Reporter Emily Bazelon says she interviewed more than two dozen young people and about the same number of parents, but they aren't the story's center. It opens with a cisgender doctor who works with trans youth, who was surprised by pushback to a proposed revision of guidelines on care for trans adolescents because that pushback came both from opponents of gender-related care and providers and activists within the transgender world. And this is the piece's explicit framing suggestion, to find a reasonable path between extremes. As one quoted medical source puts it, quote, Either there should be a vending machine for gender hormones or people who prescribe them to kids should be put in jail, close quote. Making medical professionals the neutral expert center between supposed societal extremes does many things, among them misrepresenting reality. Holler cites trans historian Jules Gill-Peterson, who points out that transgender medicine has actually established very narrow eligibility criteria, and that, quote, the great expense of transition has kept it out of reach for most trans people, 
regardless of whether or not they might be able to qualify under any medical model, close quote. So although the right wing and the medical establishment may see themselves as being on very different sides of this issue, and justifiably so in many ways, both still seek to control whether or which trans people get to exist. Making doctors the center of the story, the balance between trans activists and the right, misrepresents the playing field and stacks the deck against those who should be centered trans people themselves. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. During the 2020 campaign, the New York Times explained, Joe Biden pledged, if elected, to stop coddling Saudi Arabia after the brutal murder of a prominent dissident and Washington Post contributor, Jamal Khashoggi. We are not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them, Biden said. We're going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. When officials said Biden would visit the kingdom in July and meet with Mohammed bin Salman, understood as the architect of Khashoggi's murder, the New York Times explained, quote, it was just the latest sign that oil has again regained its centrality in geopolitics, close quote. NPR said it tighter, telling listeners, Biden has changed his tune on Saudi Arabia and oil is a big part of the reason. Vox had a long, twisty piece about the visit as a sign of tensions in Biden's foreign policy. He wants policy to benefit the middle class, like trying to lower gas prices, but he wants policy to center human rights, a reflection, the outlet assures us, of Biden's gut feeling about democracy delivering better for people. Well, pity the earnest soul trying to make sense of U.S. foreign policy by way of news media, always being asked to believe in values that are nowhere in evidence, principles that are overthrown at the first turn, and above all, something called realism that always seems to afflict the afflicted and comfort the comfortable. What would a humane, independent press corps be talking about when we talk about Biden's upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia? We're joined now by Raya Jarrar, Advocacy Director at DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now, an organization founded by Jamal Khashoggi. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Raya Jarrar. Thank you for having me again. Well, Jamal Khashoggi comes up in virtually every piece about this visit. Bloomberg's editors say that Biden isn't likely to elicit any public contrition, but Saudi leaders should at least guarantee that no similar atrocity will take place again. You get the impression from coverage that Saudi leadership did one bad thing. So maybe we should all just try to get past it. It's very strange, but given an absence of information, that might be what many people will come away with. And that is a very misguided analysis. Obviously, the Saudi government and many other governments in the Middle East, Egypt, Israel, uh, the United Arab Emirates and others, have been committing uh, human rights abuses on a daily basis. Uh, And the Biden administration made big, grand promises before uh, President Biden came into office. Uh, But regardless of these promises, What the administration is doing now is that it is breaching U.S. and international law by continuing to support and aid these abusive and apartheid governments in the Middle East. And unfortunately, we're just hearing a new set of excuses 
to justify the same old policy. Well, yeah, because people are going to read stories saying this visit is a bad idea or it's a good idea or it's a bad thing, but we have to do it. What we're not seeing is discussion of what might be the real purposes or the likely outcomes of this trip. And I wonder what you make of that and of the sort of scramble to present it as a necessary reset in terms of U.S.-Saudi policy. I wish there was a reset in U.S. Saudi policy, uh, it is uh, more or less the same for the last decade. The U.S. policy in the Middle East in general uh, has been on autopilot for decades. And many think tanks and human rights organizations in Washington, D.C. have been pleading that this administration should change the status quo and should rethink the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Whether it's the $3.8 billion that we give to Israel every year, whether it's the $1.3 billion that we give to Egypt every year, whether it's the hundreds of billions of dollars of weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and Emirates, these are entrenched practices and policies that have been taking place for a long time. They are so deeply rooted in Washington, D.C., protected by special interests and lobbyists. And all of the reasons why D.C. is broken. (laughs) Hmm. So the fact that the administration is continuing the exact same policy now, uh, the administration is telling us that it's, you know, it's it's for our own good or it's for the, like, real politique, just to be, uh, you know, uh, reasonable and realistic that we have to go down the path of funding apartheid in Israel and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and doing all of these crimes, uh, supporting all of these crimes in the region. It's not true. That's actually not true. The United States does have an option to uh, stop these policies, shift our policies in the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, and start abiding by our own law. We have existing U.S. law that prohibits the United States from funding and aiding and selling weapons to human rights abusers. We have other options when it comes to energy. We don't have to actually have our president fly and shake the hands of the mastermind of the mother of Jamal Khashoggi to bring us oil. That's that's not true. There are so many other options for energy independence. There are many other options for the reduction of use of energy in the U.S. There are options for getting other types of energy. There are options of getting oil from other places. There are so many options that these... Narratives that we're dealing with now are fake narratives, lazy narratives to justify the status quo, because changing the status quo in D.C. is not easy. Absolutely. Well, and part of what presents an obstacle is this kind of misinformation or even disinformation that comes from the media. I mean, I'm just looking at... And from politicians, you know, media sort of credulously repeating Biden's quote, well, I'm not going to change my view on human rights, but as president of the United States, my job is to bring peace if I can, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Um, You know, going back to the Bloomberg editors, they say healthy U.S.-Saudi ties are critical to calming a volatile part of the world. So I think even well-meaning folks are reading that and thinking, Okay, well, shaking hands with someone, if that's going to calm volatility and if that's going to bring peace, well, then I'm for that. And yet (laughs) distinguishing that from actual diplomacy is is something else again. 
That's right. And, and listen, I grew up in the in the Arab world. I am half Palestinian and half Iraqi. I grew up in different parts of, of the Arab world, in, in Iraq and, and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and other, other countries. And I'm very familiar with the narrative of trying to use Israel-Palestine and peace for Israel-Palestine as a justification to continue abusive government policy. This is how we grew up. Mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein always told us that we have to not criticize the Iraqi government because he is working to bring peace and end the occupation of, of Palestine. Right. Assad says the same, and uh, Mubarak said the same, and all of these Arab dictators. And now we are hearing, ironically, a similar narrative coming from the United States. So President Biden is telling us that to bring, quote-unquote, peace to Israel-Palestine, he needs to travel to the region and uh, normalize relationships with dictators, normalize relationships with apartheid regimes. And that is not true. Uh, the United States' role in Israel-Palestine is a part of the problem. And there is no war between Saudi Arabia and Israel <laughs> that President Biden has to go there and negotiate an end or a peace treaty for. What President Biden is doing is, is he's continuing a negative U.S. role in the region, a negative uh, U.S. role that has contributed a longer apartheid in Israel to additional human rights abuse in Saudi Arabia and the region. Uh, and his visit will not help peace. It will not help human rights. It will not help U.S. interests in the region. It will help maintain the very narrowly defined special interests that we have here in Washington, D.C., whether they are the oil lobbyists or the weapon lobbyists or Israel lobbyists or Saudi Arabia lobbyists, very, very narrowly defined interests that come from very, very, very small groups. Those are the people who are benefiting from this. The United States as a country is not, the U.S. people are not, and people in the Middle East region are not. Well, let me just ask you finally, while many in elite media are trying to hurry us past the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and sort of see that as something to put behind us in order to move forward, lots of folks are not supporting that and are, in fact, have put in place partly a a symbol to say that this is not something we're going to forget. Let me just ask you to end with that street renaming in uh, D.C., which I understand is in front of the Saudi embassy, is that right? That is right. Uh, Last week, uh, we finally uh, officially changed the name of the street outside of the Saudi embassy to Jamal Khashoggi Way. Uh, We placed official uh, street signs uh, after the D.C. Council voted to change the name of the street. And after the D.C. Department of Transportation worked with us to unveil these signs. We have four signs right outside of the Saudi embassy. Uh, One of them is immediately outside the door of the embassy. So everyone who's going to the embassy uh, will see that. Uh, But not only this, if you uh, look at Google Maps today at the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C., the name of the street right outside it has been changed also on Google Maps to Jamal Khashoggi Way. This is a daily reminder to anyone who is going to the embassy, whether they work there or visiting, that Jamal Khashoggi has not been forgotten, and uh, we will continue to fight for justice for tomorrow. Uh, we will also try to uh, work on other streets around the United States, around the U.S. consulates, maybe in Los Angeles and Boston and New York, to also change the names of the streets there to Jamal Khashoggi Way, so that will serve as a permanent reminder 
to everyone who passes there every day about the crime that took place in 2018. We've been speaking with Raya Jarrar, Advocacy Director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. They are online at dawnmina.org. Raya Jarrar, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks again for having me. Corporate news media make little mistakes, misrepresentations that have impact. But day after day, they do something bigger and deeper that affects us all at an almost cellular level. And that is to accept and propagate the story that the United States doesn't have enough to provide for the basic needs of its people. Some simply must suffer. But the country does have enough to sink billions of dollars into weapons of war to defend the system that, you know, demands suffering for large numbers of us. It doesn't make sense. And to the extent that it does, wouldn't a humane country be challenging every penny that goes toward killing people to see if it might be used to support people? If you ask them, the U.S. public wants such a reprioritization. But what happens when lawmakers, people in actual positions of power, call for such a thing and attempt to outline how it might happen? Lindsay Koshgarian is the program director of the National Priorities Project. She joins us now by phone from Massachusetts. Welcome to Counterspin, Lindsay Koshgarian. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I am unfortunately confident that many or most listeners don't know anything about it. So would you please just tell us about the bill introduced by Democratic House Representatives Barbara Lee of California and Mark Pocan of Wisconsin? What is that bill and what would it do? Absolutely. Well, it makes sense to start with our Pentagon budget and and just how big it is, because, of course, the bill is about reallocating some of that money. So our Pentagon budget right now It is approaching $800 billion, and President Biden has suggested a budget that would go over $800 billion. Meanwhile, many folks in Congress are pushing for a budget that goes even above what President Biden has asked for and what the Pentagon has said is enough. So that's the background. The budget as it is now is higher than it was at the height of the Vietnam War. It is higher than the next nine countries combined, some of which are our allies, And it is 12 times as much as Russia's. So it's a huge, huge amount of money. It's also more than half of the discretionary budget that Congress allocates every year. That means that less than half is left for things like housing assistance, homelessness programs, public education, public health, the CDC, medical research. All of these things have to fit into less than half. So what the Lee Pocan bill is, is introduced by Representative Barbara Lee and Representative Mark Pocan. And it suggests that we should cut $100 billion from the Pentagon budget in order to reallocate that money to other priorities. And this number is significant for a couple of reasons. One is that it would take us back a couple of years. The budget has been growing every single year. It would take us back a few years and, and get rid of some of that growth. Another is that last year there was a study from the Congressional Budget Office that showed that you could cut $100 billion from the Pentagon budget without even changing what our national security mission is. So even if we kept all of our wars going, even if we kept our hundreds of overseas bases, even if we kept our hundreds of thousands of troops that are around the world at any given time, you could still basically do all of those same things if you cut $100 billion. 
So this is not even a significant cut. It's not even a remaking of our national security, even though we need a remaking of our national security. And you could do all of those things without touching troops pay or benefits or their child care or any of the things that folks in the military rely on. That's an important inoculation against what you are likely to see about pulling blankets off soldiers in foxholes. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's important to say that this didn't drop from the sky. This is not the first iteration that we've had. There was a Sanders-Lee-Pocan bill a couple years back. But it's also, it's not just, hey, let's start thinking about this. This legislation builds on work that groups have been doing. That's right. And we are one of those groups. So a couple of years back, uh, and at that time, the Pentagon budget was smaller than it is today. We did a study where we found ways to cut up to $300 billion off of the Pentagon budget. And that was by doing things like closing some of our more than 700 overseas military installations. No other country has more than 20. It would be doing things like cutting back on some of the most expensive weapons systems, cutting back on the number of planes and ships that we have. For example, the U.S. military has 11 aircraft carriers. No other country has more than two with a third in the works. That's China. So we've got many, many more than they have. So we can cut back some on that and still be ahead of any other country. And cutting back on things like nuclear weapons. And then there's also cutting back on some of the bureaucracy. One of the things that we suggested doing was shifting the military health system into a larger universal health system for all Americans. So by doing things like that, we found that you could cut up to $350 billion a year from the Pentagon budget. And there are many other groups that have come up with similar lists of ways to cut tens or hundreds of billions of dollars from the Pentagon budget. Well, let me just draw you back to a point you made earlier. Some legislators want more than the Pentagon is asking. How does that make sense? Yes, this is something that actually happens year in and year out, and it comes from a couple of places. One, of course, is the military-industrial complex. Anytime the military asks for fewer planes or they ask to retire some ships like they're doing now, they're, of course, contractors who either build those systems or get the contracts for maintaining those systems. And the contractors don't like that, so they always object. Then there are the parochial political concerns. So a lot of times, you know, if the Pentagon wants fewer of a certain ship and that ship is made in a particular congressional district, you get opposition on the basis of that local economy, even though we know that if you took those same dollars and put them into job creation in healthcare or education or infrastructure, you could create more jobs in that local economy mm-hmm. than by the shipbuilding or other investments in war. So those are a couple of the big things. The contractors are immensely powerful. They take in any given year around half and frequently more than half of the entire Pentagon budget. It's a huge, huge industry and a huge problem of how much power they wield over the congressional process. It's a local community problem. But the answer to that, of course, is that the Pentagon shouldn't be a jobs program. If we need a jobs program in this country, and we do, we should create a jobs program. And so those are the two big reasons why you see folks in Congress pushing for more money. Well, again, that reprioritization is what people, when you explain it and ask them, that's what they want. So if it doesn't happen, you would hope that the media story would be, 
Why don't people's desires and their basic needs translate into policy rather than trying to convince people that they're kind of too dumb to understand what needs to happen? I wonder what you would like to see more of or less of in terms of news media attention to these issues. Yes, it's a great question because you're right. We have polling, recent polling that shows that a majority of folks in this country would want to see money taken from the Pentagon and reallocated to all of the things that we know we desperately need, like healthcare, like education, like infrastructure. So we know that people are behind that. But we also know that our political system frequently doesn't follow the will of the people. Right. And one of the reasons is Congress is very captured by industry. But that, that doesn't mean that there aren't things we can do about it. Being captured by industry really comes down to wanting to be reelected. And so if folks vote and if folks communicate with their member of Congress, we can put forward very effective counter pressure toward that. So we need more of that first and foremost. But we also do need a media that is more accountable. They're too credulous about threats, whether it be from China or from Russia. And both of those are threats that are overblown. China is not primarily a military threat to the United States, and so we shouldn't respond to it in a military manner. And Russia has proven to be both less strong militarily and also is it something the entire world community can deal with through means like diplomacy and through means like building institutions that enforce international law and ways other than the U.S. spending more money on our military. So those are the kinds of things that we need to see the media asking questions about, pushing back on members of Congress and asking them if what we really need is more money for the Pentagon. Well, and I would just say, finally, what I would hope to see is also a building out, a talking about the other part of it, which is what it might look like to devote those resources to human needs. There's plenty of stories there to talk about what would various social issues and problems look like with an infusion of resources. There's a, a way to tell the story that's about what we could have. That's absolutely right. Yes. We need to see a redefining of security. The Pentagon, in theory, is supposed to be keeping us safe. But meanwhile, we still have hundreds of deaths from COVID. We are still in an opioid epidemic. We are heading into a wildfire and hurricane season that we don't even know how bad it will be yet because of climate change. Those are all things that we need for security. And we did a study as an example of, you know, the kind of things that we could be doing if we weren't putting so much money into the Pentagon. We found that in the 20 years since 9-11, we spent $21 trillion on supposed security. And that for just a quarter of that cost, for less than $5 trillion, we could have had an entirely renewable energy grid in this country. And that could be done. We could have done it already. And so what we need to desperately do is make sure that in the next 20 years, we don't make those same choices again. We need to put money where we need it to be and solve the problems that are actually the most dire problems we have. We've been speaking with Lindsay Kushgarian. She's program director of the National Priorities Project. They're online at nationalpriorities.org. Lindsay Kushgarian, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.